Welcome to The Road to Unistoten, a documentary produced at CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Hi, I'm Liz MacArthur. In July 2014, I got on a converted school bus with a group of activists to travel 1,200 kilometers from Victoria, B.C. to the Unistoten Pipeline Blockade in northern B.C. near Houston. These are the interviews and sounds of the journey. Up the hill past the pine forest where we camped during our stay, tucked off a gravel road is a permaculture garden that's been set up to help provide food for the camp. Jeff Johnson is from Victoria and spent the action camp setting up the garden and laying a solar-powered irrigation system. He says the garden is made up of beds created mostly with rotting wood from the forest. So what we've resulted in is this kind of long snake-like mound that goes all throughout the garden and we've sown it all to different vegetables. Uh, We've done a bunch of starts in the greenhouse. People did that before I got here. It's an incredibly helpful thing to do because that's what's been the most successful in this garden is things started from starts. The nights here are very cold. It's a very challenging garden climate for me as someone's coming from Victoria. So we're trying to tune into the way to garden this environment, which you know, it's 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 almost a kilometer in the sky in northern BC. Mm-hmm. So it's it's the cold. The nights get cold. We even have frost in July sometimes, and we see frost damage on these potatoes right in front of us. But um, yeah, we're 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 learning as we go, and I'd say producing a, a pretty impressive amount of food. And of course, you know that food is is for the action camp. It's for the construction camp. It's also a backup to provide food security for the for the people that are directly defending this land from pipelines because at some point, you know, their supply lines coming in from Houston and other places might be cut off. And then secondary to that, it's just this kind of symbolic um, living protest where we're, we're actually planting and developing the, the, the alternative to the oil economy like in the path of, of the pipeline. Some other really key features, some cool stuff we got going on in here is um, a garden shed in the middle of the garden that's made from from pine logs. It's a bit of a gathering point. There's even I see there's a swing that's been put up, so that's pretty fun. And then on that shed, we've mounted a solar panel that we had donated by a by a supporter. We've linked it to a DC pump in the creek behind us, known as Talbot's Qua, and that pump pumps water from the creek through a hose, and we can hand water the garden. And what I'm doing right now is developing a drip irrigation system with solenoid valves and a timer so it can go on automatically. Um, and we've got a filter, a pressure regulator, all that stuff. And here we are laying down the actual half-inch emitter line. And so what we'll end up with is a solar-powered, timed drip irrigation system to kind of take the urgency and the madness away from all of this hand-watering, which otherwise needs to be done. So what kind of crops are you growing up here? Are there indigenous crops that you're growing up here as well? In, in selecting the plants to bring up here, I took a look and you know online and researched this, this ecosystem a little bit and looked through the plants that are here and you know there are wild elderberries, there are wild currants, wild gooseberries, those are a few examples. Um, so those plant genuses are already here on the territory. The territory is selected for those plants. And so in listening to what the land's saying, we, we brought up, um, you know, for my nursery, I propagated and brought up a bunch of yastaberries, gooseberries, currants, elderberries, but varietals, you know, mm-hmm. um, cultivar versions of those plants, which produce a lot more food and have like bigger berries and things. But we haven't overdone the, the fruit aspect because... There are a lot of berries out on the land that get traditionally harvested. Mm-hmm. But some other things we've brought in here that I've talked to some locals around Smithers to find out what they grow. Um, we've got pie cherry, 
has cap, which is a, a blueberry-like shrub that can that can do well in very cold climates. Um, we've got Saskatoon berry, blueberries, a mulberry, which isn't doing super super well, but um, gooseberry. Most of these things are are thriving. The gooseberry Pixwell gooseberry over here has looks like it's going to actually bear this year, mm. same year as we planted it. So that's kind of fun. So those are some of the perennial things um, that we're putting in. And then in terms of annuals, there aren't too many analogs for edible annual plants that are that are on the land. So yeah, we've brought in things that, that aren't native to here, but those are still, you know, whether they're growing in the garden, whether people have to go to the store, we're still gonna be eating potatoes at the blockade, right? So mm-hmm. here we are growing as many of our potatoes as possible. And potatoes can produce a lot of energy, a lot of, really high quality food um, in a relatively small space so um, you know maybe a quarter of the garden some potato and um, the rest is things like kale um, we've got salad greens um, stir-fry greens we've got a lot of bush beans and peas and then in places also we've done perennial vegetables like lovage and rhubarb and um, good king, good king henry perennial onions and then we've sown clover a lot in the interstitial spaces just, uh, you know, to fix nitrogen and attract beneficial insects and hold the soil together mm-hmm. and stuff. Oh, all these hugel mounds break down and start to establish and build their fertility up. So a combination of annual crops and, uh, and uh, fruit is most of what we've done. How much food do you expect to produce from this garden? Um, I haven't really calculated that, okay. but um, as time goes by the harvests are going to get a lot more meaningful let's put it that way you know like right now we're harvesting things like lamb's quarters and kale and collards um for greens for supper and things but um in you know the potatoes are about the size of small ping pong balls so in another month or two we'll have start to dig up potatoes Mm -hmm. get into that we've got a root bed over here that our volunteer is working on and there's onions in there and carrots we sown a bunch of beans so it's not like everything's being sown at once. There's going to be a succession of crops that we get out. Mm-hmm. It's also it's a short growing season, right? So there's not like Victoria where we can use the garden as a fridge mm-hmm. and just overwinter everything. It's sort of like we've got to harvest stuff before hard frosts and either store it in root cellars or can it, preserve it, dry it, stuff like that. It's at least going to be a really meaningful supplementation to the sources of food that there already are. And, you know, a lot of the sources of food are coming from the land because the people that live here, um, people like like Togastai and Frida, and uh, the Unistoten clan. I mean, they're 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 well um, rooted in their traditions of of hunting and trapping and plant gathering on this land, mm-hmm. and I've seen that really supplement our our food source as well. Mm-hmm. So you know, the more diversity, the more places our food comes from, probably the more stable that all is, mm-hmm. and that's kind of another permaculture idea is kind of um, stability and diversity. When you leave, you leave it in the hands of uh, Frida and Togastai, is that right? Yeah, yeah, and luckily, um, you know, Togastai is a really eclectic guy. He's, he's, like I said before, they're really well, totally rooted in their traditions here on the land, but, you know, I think he's done agricultural exchanges in South America, and he, mm-hmm. he really gets this and understands why it's important and is really supportive of it. I think he's probably the person that comes up here and does most of the hand watering. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, it'll be in good hands. Uh, they've got 101 things to do, but um, coming up here also is probably a bit of a respite mm-hmm. as well. And, and you know, that's that's really what I want to work on is kind of growing out the culture of this and making sure that uh, 
that people know how to work the irrigation system, that people know relatively how much water each crop needs. And, and uh, nothing will go perfectly, but, um, you know, there's email and there's phone and emailing pictures and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. no, I'll, I'll stay, uh, stay involved and keep my finger on the pulse for sure. But we've also kind of made a garden, which is on, on the lower maintenance side mm-hmm. of things. So, Was that intentional? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's a little bit of a larger scale, so um, we can't get too nitpicky and be like constantly thinning intensive beds of greens and stuff. We try to focus a little bit more on the on the starchy crops. And, yeah. Lauren Phillips was volunteering in the garden while I was talking to Jeff. I am planting potatoes um, in Jeff's awesome permaculture garden. <laughs> well, the camp's awesome permaculture garden, mainly headed by Jeff. Have you done a lot of gardening before? Um, yeah, I work as a gardener in Vic, but mostly just landscaping type work. Mm. Yeah. Did you expect to be working in the permaculture garden when you came up here? I sort of hoped that I would. I didn't. I didn't really like know what to expect, so I tried not to expect anything. But I definitely like hoped to, mm-hmm. and I'm happy that I am able to. How did you find out about the camp and get involved in coming up here? I guess I found out about the camp. I started volunteering at Camus Books and Info Shop in Victoria, which is like um, an alternative, uh, cooperatively owned and volunteer run and organized um, bookstore. And I've seen um, a few indigenous like sovereignists like speak, like I saw Ancestral Pride there. And then they've also done fundraisers for the Unistoten camp that I've went to. And so I've seen Frida and Togestai speak twice before coming here. And just found it very inspiring and felt like there was nothing else that I've meant to do. Right. So how long are you going to stay while you're up here? I'm going to stay until, I'm going to go back with the bus to Vancouver. So until I guess the 20th, I think they're leaving. Thanks for listening to The Road to Unistoten. This documentary was made possible with support from CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Music comes from Tanya Tagak and Running Point. To find out more about the camp, visit unistotencamp.com. To find out more about CFUV, visit cfuv.uvic.ca.